This morning is a little bittersweet to this lesson. I've enjoyed studying with us for the past 11 weeks on the theme of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And one of the reasons why I have loved this series so much is because it reflects Paul's appreciation for a great congregation of people. They weren't perfect, but they were a great congregation with so much about which a person could give thanks. And when you, for instance, study 1st Thessalonians, Paul's appreciation comes through every chapter and all the things that they did that made them such a good church. But then you get Second Thessalonians, you realize that even good churches face trouble. And you know, when you get to chapter 1, it's distressing when you see churches suffer persecution from non-Christians. When people in the world decide they don't like what you stand for and the God you serve, and they begin to attack the church head on or in the face. It's sad when you get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and you realize that some people are in a panic because they have misunderstood God's divine plan as was presented. But then when you get to chapter 3, it's embarrassing when the church suffers problems because of wayward members, when we fall from our faithfulness and we're no longer walking as God would have us to walk and not only can we inside the church see it, but those on the outside perceive it as well. How a church responds to the challenges that it is presented with says a lot about that church. We're all going to face challenges. We're all going to face temptations. We're all going to face troubles in our lives. But how do we, as a congregation of God's people, rise up and meet these challenges? Now, as I further try to introduce this to you, I want you to think about how some people deal with problems on the inside. And one of the illustrations I'd like to use is found in the book of 1 Samuel, and it's with regards to Eli. Eli was the judge of Israel, but he was also the leader of these people. And when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 2, you see the condition of the congregation of Israel and their leadership. Samuel records, now Eli was very old, and he heard how, heard everything his sons did to all Israel, how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. Pause with me for just a moment. And you think about, here is the leader of God's people and his sons are not doing what is right. And what he does, he looks at his sons and says, Son, that's not good. You don't need to be doing that. When I get to chapter 3 and verse 13, For I have told him that I will judge his house for ever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile 
and he did not restrain them. Oh, he was upset, he was grieved, Eli was, but his sons did not live a righteous life before God. And the text says he didn't restrain them. It's not just the Old Testament. I can see it in churches. If you go to the seven churches of Asia found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and you come to the church at Thyatira and as Jesus through the Apostle John is trying to enumerate the things they've done good and the, the things that are problems, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow, the King James uses the word suffer, to permit that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, teaches and seduces my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. You have a church that is tolerating open, flagrant sin. Oh, that's not the way you respond. Not at all. On the other hand, sometimes churches can become let's use some correct terms here, mean, harsh, overreacting. If you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was amazed that the church was there tolerating a man having his father's wife. And Paul's command to them was is that they were to withdraw from that man who had his father's wife. And yet, when you get to 2 Corinthians, it is apparent that this man has repented. The people had encouraged him to repent. They did what they were supposed to. But then, after he repented, they continued to treat him as if he was no longer accepted, no longer welcome. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, or chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that now, on the contrary, you ought to forgive and comfort him, lest such a one should be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. What is Paul telling the church at Corinth? He's repented. Now forgive him. Treat him like he's supposed to be treated. Comfort him. Encourage him. Help him. Of course, he goes on to explain that Satan would just love for you to become harsh and unforgiving. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32... And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We need to realize that we can go to two different extremes. We can tolerate sin or we can become so harsh with people that they no longer feel desired, that they'll no longer want to repent. Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is going to address this and provide us some direction. The first thing he's going to tell us is is that we are to be directed by the Word. God's Word must be our source of authority. 
Number two, he's going to talk about dealing with the disorderly in their conduct. What are we supposed to do? And then finally, to talk about the discipline to save. Our motivation is to try to save that soul. So if you've got your Bibles, let's begin now. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord, both concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts in the love of God and the patience of Christ. Now, as you begin, there's the strong emphasis on praying for Paul. Brethren, pray for us. What do you mean pray for you? Well, pray for our health, pray for the things. But he's more concerned praying that the word of God may progress. I want you to pray for me as a preacher. But I am very much interested in that you pray that whatever ability or talent or opportunity that I may have that it may be successful. Paul wanted them to pray that the word of the Lord may run swift. That's the way the New King James translates it. The original King James says may have free course. I find that's a very interesting word. Uh, one of the lexicons I use a lot is called Luanida and it means to run with emphasis upon relative speed in contrast to walking. In other words, you want to go fast. The Mounts lexicon says to run, to progress freely, to advance rapidly. And the idea of freely, there's nothing in your way. There's nothing encumbering you. Pray that the word of God, we would say, may take off. That wherever we go, it can have a a great impact, a quick impact on people. As a church, they had already honored the Word of God. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, he says that when you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You took the what we presented to you and you recognize that's from God. When I study First and Second Thessalonians, I appreciate this good church because they honored the Bible. But in contrast, he says, may God deliver us from unreasonable and wicked men. And then he can... Uh, concludes, not all have faith. Not everybody has that appreciation. Do you know when you go out in the world and you preach the gospel to the whole creation, Mark 16, 15, not everybody's going to accept it. In Romans chapter 10, 
You look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not everybody is reasonable. You can't take your Bible and sit down with every person and say, let's talk about what this book says. No, I'm not going to listen to you. Not everybody accepts the Word of God. Pray that it will be successful. And pray that we'll be delivered from those kind of men. And then he uses the words to guide, to guard, and direct. I think that's interesting. Sometimes I've heard criticisms of using those words in prayers and maybe they have become an oft-repeated phrase. But all three of those ideas are found in these first few verses. But now let me move to what is obviously the, the crux of chapter 3. And that is dealing with people who are disorderly in their conduct. Read with me carefully as we begin with verse 6 and we go through verse 13. But we command you, brethren... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves also know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. But we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves example how you ought to follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, they work in quietness, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, when you go back and you look at verse 5, you see Paul expressing confidence that whatever he commands them to do, they have done it and they will do it. And then as you get to this section here, verses 6 through 13, he's going to give more than one command, but the very first one, this very first imperative is that you withdraw. That's not a real pleasant word. The lexicon defines it as to shun something, to avoid, to try to avoid. There's some things about which you find yourselves in a situation. You may say, I need to get out of this. I don't want to be anywhere near it. That's what you've got to do with regards to these people. And then he defines the ones that a person is to withdraw from. It's the disorderly. The lexicon defines it as in defiance 
of good order or disorderly. I'm sure in the past you have perhaps heard the usage of this word in secular literature. It refers to a person who is out of step, who's marching. Now, I can sympathize with people who march out of step. When I was in the seventh grade, I was in the marching band. And they would start playing the drums, a cadence, and you started right, left, right, left. And then as you started to march out onto the football field at halftime, I always would look to my person to the right and left to be sure that my steps matched their steps. Of course, what's bad is if the person next to you is out of step as well, then you're pretty much going to be out of step. Those are people who are trying, but they're not necessarily what. But I want you to notice this word is in defiance of good order. This is a person who says, I'm not going to march to your rules. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the disorderly. But Paul's going to explain. As you go further, he says, verse 6, the disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received of us. You see, there were rules, there were commands, there were laws that had been given through the apostles like the apostle Paul, and they said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be living by those rules. We're going to be defiant. You get to verse 11. One of the things that Paul had commanded was that a man work earn his own living, eat his own bread. And he says they're disorderly, not working at all, but are busybodies. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And there's all kind of speculation why they might have quit working. Some have suggested since they had believed that the resurrection was about to take place immediately, as we studied in chapter 2, that they had sold everything they had was just going to live off of their proceeds until the Lord returned again. They weren't working at a job. They were now idle, and that idleness led them into being busybodies. I do know that if you drop back to verse 7, Paul says, we were not disorderly among you. And then he explained what that involved. He said, we didn't eat anybody else's bread. We work with our own hands. Let me make a few observations about this, some things that I think are worthy of note. The sin of laziness led to the sin of being a busybody. Sometimes one sin can lead us into another sin that may lead us into another sin. Laziness is a sin. And a person who is lazy will not work, and because they don't work, they have way too much time on their hands. And the old phrase, the old proverb, not the biblical proverb, but one is an idle mind is a devil's workshop. And because of that, they became busybodies. This is not the only place where this is found. For instance, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and he's talking about widows, and he says, I want the younger widows to marry, to bear children, to keep the home. And then he explains about those 
who do not, he says, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not. You see what's happening. A second thing that I think is an observation to note from this section is you don't help a lazy person by giving him food. I didn't say a poor person, a needy person. I said you don't help a lazy person by giving him food. Paul says if man won't work, he's defiant, neither should he eat. You know, in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 19, he says if you deliver a man of great wrath, he says you'll have to do it again. You know what happens if there's a person who's lazy and you give him some food? You're going to have to give him some more and some more. In chapter 21, verse 25 of Proverbs, the desire of a lazy man kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Oh, you understand the kind of man we're talking about here. Even the poor of the Old Testament, God didn't say you go out and you just hand it to them. He says, no, you allow them to glean your fields. I'd suggest to you, if you want a little study this afternoon, look up in your concordance the word glean. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. In other words, they were responsible for going out to the corners of the field, to what was left of the harvest to glean for themselves. But let me hasten to add, verse 13 says, but don't grow weary in doing good. The fact that we're not supposed to support the lazy, we're not supposed to support those people who refuse to work doesn't mean that we should ever develop a hard heart toward those who are truly needy and somehow quit doing the good we ought to do. We should never become jaded toward the truly needy. Now, if you will, let's focus on verses 14 through 18. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person... And do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now when I get to verses 14 and 15 specifically, Paul explains the how and the why. How am I supposed to withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly? Why am I supposed to withdraw from these brethren? 
The first thing he tells us is to note that person. Some translations say mark that person. The idea is is that the church knows who this person is, they know his name, they know what he is doing. The note is the idea that it's acknowledged to the church. Do you remember Matthew 15 or Matthew 18 verse 15? If a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Verse 16, if he will not hear you, take with you one or two that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Then you get to verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. You tell it to the church. The church has now noted that person. Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause the divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. You've got to know who they are. You've got to know the people who are causing the trouble, the people who are being rebellious and being defiant against God's law. Perhaps the clearest parallel is found in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5. Paul puts it very direct about what the church is to do. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's a church activity. It's not dropping someone off of the roll and saying, well, we're not just going to count them anymore. This is a church activity. Then he explains, not only are you to withdraw and to mark that person, to note that person, but you're not company with them means you don't associate with them. You don't let them think, oh, everything's fine. In fact, you're not to eat with them. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's a fornicator, covetous, drunkard, idolater, reviler, extortioner, such person, no, not to eat. 2 John 9, he is under consideration, somebody who's coming through and he doesn't teach the truth. He said, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. You don't bring him in and say, oh, it's okay. You, we'll accept you regardless of what you believe, what you teach, what you practice. He says, if you do, you become a partaker of his evil deeds. But you know, someone might say, yeah, let's get them. But there's a motivation behind this. And the motivation is so the person will be ashamed of his behavior. When you stand to fight, you need to understand you've sinned and I'm not going to go along with you that, so maybe you'll be ashamed of what you've done. 
But then he follows by saying in verse 15, but don't count him as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. And that's really hard to do sometimes. This balance that you have to have by letting a person know that you don't agree with their behavior, you don't agree with what they're doing, and yet at the same time, they still know that you care about their soul. And you don't hate them. You don't treat them like you would treat an enemy. You admonish them like you would a brother. And let me point out to you, you don't do this just immediately. Sometimes people say, oh, let's just get them, let's just get rid of them. No, no, no. When I go to Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Be patient long enough to give a person a time to understand their behavior. Even with regards to the church. And it was talked about Jezebel, about Thyatira. I gave her space of time to repent. But she does not will to repent of her fornication. Revelation chapter 2. Discipline is the ultimate act of trying to save a person's soul. That's what we're trying to do. So what does churches do when they find themselves with wayward members? Do you do like Eli? You ignore it and you just try to act like it didn't happen? Do you become harsh like evidently some of the Corinthians did and and refuse to forgive once they've repented? Even good churches, like the church in Thessalonica, have problems. How did they respond? As far as I know, we don't have a, a record of the response of these people in Thessalonica. I have hope in mind that they went to those brethren and said to them, we can't walk with you anymore, we can't eat with you anymore, we can't company with you anymore until you change your lives, and they changed. And because of the loving treatment, they were won back. I don't know. I do know what the Bible teaches us to do. When someone says, I don't know, this talk of discipline makes me feel uncomfortable. It does me too. I don't like the idea of having to be disciplined. But you know, we could avoid that. If every one of us would look at ourselves and say, I am determined in myself that I'm not going to fall away from the Lord. I'm going to determine in myself that I am going to live a righteous life, that if the elders are going to have to deal with the problem, it's not going to be with me. That I'm going to be the one who's going to try to the very best of my ability to follow the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, I think Paul put it very well by saying, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If I would look at my life and say, okay, what are you doing? What are you teaching? How are you living? 
And if I would deal with that, I would never have to worry about discipline. At least not with me. You know, we're at the end of the lesson, and at the end of every lesson, we extend the Lord's invitation. The purpose of the invitation is not just a a tradition. It's not just something that we do just to end a lesson. It is actually a genuine offer for a person to be able to do something now. For the person who's not a Christian, it's an opportunity to say, I want to become a Christian. We've already seen that this year. And Gracie decided she wanted to be baptized for remission of her sins. It's also an opportunity for those of us who look in our lives and we see a I'm going in the wrong direction. I know I need to fix things. I know I need to change them. It's time to do that. Would you come while we stand and sing?